0: Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy.
1: You're listening to Visions of Education,
0: a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Milton high school teacher from massachusetts and i'm dan kretka an education professor in texas we're here to help bridge the gap between educators in
0: the k-12 and those professors in higher ed we hope this podcast will help bring
1: those fuzzy ideas in education into focus dan have you ever been given advice if so was it good have been giving advice
0: and you know teachers were always giving advice to each other teacher educators were always talking amongst each other but I really love when students have something like really thoughtful to say especially about teaching I was teaching a class in May and I just had a great group but there's one particular student who was just very curious he's like a little educator philosopher already and he's not little he's a college student but he was you know preparing to be a teacher and he just had a lot of questions about education and the purpose he wasn't one of the students who's just concerned about like, what do I do when class starts? But he wanted to know, why do we do this? Why do we teach? And I was Mm. talking to him about organizing my class. He he would ask me very specific questions about why did you choose to do this or that? And he said that the idea that he really liked is that education is so complex and we often try to deal with a lot of stuff in class. He liked to ask himself when he was planning, what's the one thing I want everyone to like, get out of today, the idea yeah. I want to center on, the skill I want to focus on, but like, what's the one thing? And I thought that was just like a really intelligent comment because a lot of educators know so much about education, right? but translating it to like experiences in a classroom, you know, doesn't always go well. Sometimes we almost have too much going on in our brains and we forget to do the things we find most important.
1: Interesting. I've gotten, talk slower. And stop making references to early edition because it was a stupid show in the 90s that no one understands.
0: Yeah, I don't even know what that is. I'm like a 90s kid. What is that?
1: It This guy got the newspaper early and he could <laughs> change it, I guess. I've only seen a few episodes, but for some reason I was constantly talking about it.
0: Yeah, you definitely can't just reference your like, side interests that no one understands or your like hobbies or shows that no one understands. But you have a lot of references star wars and and popular oh, culture course. so i think i think you do okay with that yeah
1: oh, good. yeah luckily star wars is back because these things are all i can always say this is a solo activity not a chewy and solo activity
0: mm, very nice that's a
1: <laughs> star wars thing
0: have your students ever given you advice or where does some of that inspiration come from for you to change your teaching and to be more effective
1: Sometimes it's just kind of reading the room, realizing that an activity that I might have been doing for a little bit has definitely gotten stale. And then sometimes it's asking students like, okay, why didn't that work? And then kind of sitting there and trying to figure out ways in which to do it better or just to scrap it and do something else. Yeah. But yeah, no, I fail a lot.
0: I think, well, we all do, right? And that's that's why teaching experience is so important. If If you're really reflective. You learn a lot from your failures. But yeah, I remember reading a book that talked about, I'm trying to remember who the author was, but I remember reading a book once that talked about just looking at your students' faces to see how the lesson is going. Yeah, And, you know, it, it's kind of that whole idea that, you know, we can try to make education a science as much as we want, but there's something about feeling what's happening in a classroom that can help you really understand if it's working.
1: One of the things that we're talking a lot about in my department, and I, we've been talking about this for a while, but we're, we might get somewhere. We've been talking a lot about inquiry, and I'm kind of afraid to, to start because I don't want to do it poorly and then be so like, frustrated with it. I'm just going to scrap it all together, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's challenging to do inquiry as well because you're opening up a lot of space for students to do a lot of the work. Although you should be an expert at this point, Michael. We've had like a bunch of inquiry episodes.
1: I know, but can't we just have one or two more?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think we could. You know what? In fact, let's just transition to what we were planning and make this an inquiry episode. See Woo-hoo. if we can get some guests
1: in even, huh? Fantastic. We actually have not one, not two, but three guests, which is exciting, Dad. I was hoping for a little bit more excitement there. I
0: thought you were going to, like, follow up and say their names. No,
1: no, I was looking for, like, round of applause or something from you. I just wanted a little bit more from you, Dan. Read the room, well, man.
0: Uh, I'm still, you know, fail, podcasting failure is part of growing as a podcaster.
1: Well, luckily, we have someone who just keeps coming back. In fact, he's on the intro many times. Wayne Jernell, super friend of the pod. Wayne Jornel, how are you?
2: i am doing well and it's good to be back it's been at least you know a couple months since i've been on a pod so
1: i think we do have like a little sign somewhere that says we have so many episodes without Wayne now and we try to keep getting it up but it doesn't.
2: <laughs> yeah your ratings have gone way up
1: since i haven't been on the pod so this is good we also have brand new guests to us adam freeman adam how are you
3: I am great. Thank you. Now watch the ratings plummet now that I am involved. So, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been a big fan of you guys. This is my first podcast as a participant. So Oh my goodness. I'm honored to be part of the show.
1: In one day we might have you back depending on, you know, what you do today. My
3: my money's on probably not. Or you might just cut me off early.
1: <laughs> we also have an editor who might edit everything you say, so you may that, not even appear. That too, yeah. <laughs> and We have friend of the pod, Emma Thacker. Emma, how are you?
4: I'm doing well. I'm glad to be back. I'm not yet cool enough or friendly enough with the podcast to call it a pod. I don't think I'm there yet, so it's still podcast to me. But maybe after today, I'll be more comfortable with the lingo. Well, we hope
1: so. Dan, what episode was Emma on?
0: Emma was on episode 84, Inquiry in Elementary Education. It was her, Erin Casey, Katie Knapp and Carly Muterdi's, and we should reference some of those episodes. These should all be bundled together as just like an inquiry podcast journey you,
1: everyone can take. Can you all tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background in education?
2: I'm currently an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, but I was a former high school teacher in Virginia for several years before leaving and going to the University of Illinois for graduate school. So I I taught just about every social studies they had in the building, but mostly U.S. history and government there for a while. So now I spend most of my time working with pre-service teachers, which I really enjoy.
1: All right, Adam, the debut. Similar
3: to Wayne, I was a high school teacher in Virginia. I taught a bunch of different social studies related subjects, and I went to the University of Virginia for graduate school. This is now my 12th year at Wake Forest, where I'm a professor of social studies education, and I've had the great fortune of working with Emma for two years, a few years ago. I'm a department chair. So although I like to think I'm a professor and a teacher, I'm very often dealing with department chair type of responsibilities, uh, not to complain, just sort of that's what it is. And that, maybe that's why I haven't been invited onto a podcast before. I don't know. So I've kind of been
0: out of it a little bit with social studies research in the last few years. So as department chair, is it kind of like a principal? Can you just walk into professors' classrooms and say, why aren't you doing more inquiry? Ha! Faculty members don't always love hearing unsolicited opinion. I can confirm that's
1: about right. Yeah. <laughs> And Emma, tell us again a little bit about yourself.
4: Yeah, so as the only one who didn't teach high school in Virginia. I'm currently an assistant professor in Virginia at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, and I teach elementary social studies methods mostly here, but I'm from Kentucky, and that's kind of where I got my C3 inquiry training wheels, and then I've kind of continued on that path, as Adam said, at, at Wake Forest and now at JMU as well.
0: Well, we appreciate having you all on today. You all have been such a vital part of CUFA, which is the higher ed social studies organization and have been really involved in doing things for years. So I know you guys all think about your teaching and how to, you know, help social studies educators, you know, and who, are, who you work with as in-service and graduate students grow into better educators. And today we're here to feature and talk a little bit about your September 2018 article in social education titled Getting Inquiry Design Just Right. Can you guys tell us a little bit about this project and how we get inquiry just right?
2: One of the reasons we wanted to do this project is because I think everybody can kind of agree that inquiry is a good idea. You know, it sounds good. It's good in theory. And as Emma already referenced, the C3 framework that the National Council for the Social Studies put out, you know, really gives us really solid theoretical backing for doing inquiry in classrooms. But what we don't know a lot about is what it looks like in practice. There's a research base that's lagging, at least in social studies education, about how do teachers respond to inquiry how adept are they at putting inquiry together. And then more importantly, are students actually learning something from inquiry? Because that's obviously the goal. So since the publication of the C3 back in 2013, we've been trying to get more research out there. And both Emma and Adam have done research on the C3 and with teachers and things. So this is just an extension of some work that they've done that we had a group in North Carolina, including Paul Fitchett, who's also an author on this piece. He had to skip tonight because his wife made him take her out for their anniversary. And also John Lee, who's a professor at at North Carolina State University. So we've been doing a lot of research on the C3 over the past few years. And this is just one of the articles that came out of it. In fact, I, I think it might be good to turn it over to Adam and Emma a little bit to talk about how they worked with training these teachers a little bit. And then we can talk about what we found.
0: And real quickly, I'll say too, for anyone that needs a refresher, the C3 framework is kind of the guiding, probably most popular framework in the field of social studies. It came out in 2013. In episode 10, we had Kathy Swan come on and talk about C3. So if you need to know a little bit more about how C3 came about, And it's the four inquiry arc dimensions that are part of it. That can give you a little bit of refresher. But the goal of C3 is to do inquiry lessons.
4: I can give a little bit of context, I think, that Wayne was talking about with kind of the research that we did in North Carolina. I came to Wake Forest in a postdoc. And Adam already had these great relationships built with local teachers and with administrators. And it just so happened that I was fresh out of grad school and fresh out of Kathy Swan grad school and so interested in C3 framework and getting it into schools. And they were interested in inquiry. And so Adam and I just kind of got working on, I guess we went to lunch with the social studies district manager and just kind of that lunch conversation turned into this pretty sizable district-led project where we met with the group of teachers, told them about the C3, helped them design IDMs or inquiry design models, and followed some of them for a couple years, followed some of them in the classroom implementation as well as some additional trainings after that initial meeting.
3: The other thing, it was very much serendipitous in, in many ways that the school district that we worked with happened to have money set aside, which in this day and age, having money left over for social studies teachers is like, I felt like I've never seen that before or since. <laughs> and so the, the idea, though, though, is that the district social studies manager at the time, he had read about C3, he was really committed to Making this happen, and I think a lot of credit has to go to him, and obviously Emma, who did the training. So just these those two factors came together at the exact same time during that your first semester at Wake, right? It was that fall of 2014, and so they had money to pay not only give release time for teachers, but to actually pay them for their work, which obviously I'm a little bit biased here, but you know, professionalizing teachers, amazing, right? And so it just worked out really well timing-wise, and at the same time. We didn't you know if we said this, you know, per se, but it was almost at the very least, it was sort of implicitly said that we would then come collect data on the modules that these teachers create. So it worked. It was a really good relationship for all of us.
1: Emma, do you mind talking a little bit more about the training that you gave to the teachers?
4: Sure. So we did this for two years. The first year, it was just a single-day training, and it was a single-day, full-day training. And I don't really like the word training. Workshop, maybe, with secondary social studies teachers, and then that same day, a half day, with elementary. And then the second year, some of those same teachers came back, but the money grew in the second year. The district's literal buy-in to the project grew, and so we were able to work with a larger group of about 20 teachers, elementary, middle, and high school over three days. They got three full sub-days to work with us, to work with a local civic educator who helped them think about the taking informed action piece of the C3 and of the IDM, and to embed, you can imagine, quite a bit more work time over those three days to design IDMs than we were able to in the first year. We did some, but when just a single school day, there wasn't as much work time built in the first year as in the second year.
0: So I know from experience that, you know, designing a really good inquiry design model lesson is challenging. And I should call them lessons, but they're kind of like mini units because you have these compelling questions that are these big questions you're trying to answer. And then you have a bunch of supporting questions that are kind of the things you investigate. But at the same time, then often you're using disciplinary concepts and ideas to explore a bunch of sources and evidence And then at the end, you want to do something meaningful, which it's also really easy. I'm glad that you guys had a component with a civic educator to think about that because I think it's easy to kind of just drop on, like, we will tell people about what we did, right? Something that's really makes the dimension four of communicating conclusions and taking action not feel like it it's really meaningful, but it's something done for school. And so I think it's interesting because inquiries should, I think, feel Real. So what are kind of the possibilities and challenges that you learned in working with teachers about how they were able to do this work?
4: So thinking about from the first year to the second year, one of the things that we emphasized with the teachers was the variety of sources that they encourage students to work with, along with the formative performance tasks for each supporting question. So in the first year, in the workshop and the seminars, we didn't talk as much about or emphasize how to find the sources and how to think through, you know, not only the content that the sources need to carry, but also the ways that students are going to be working with those sources and the value that it brings to make sure they're not nine text-based primary sources over the course of this IDM. So in the second year, we had teachers using more visual sources, more video, still plenty of text space, but also infographics and maps. And it was just a lot, the sources were richer and not by much additional work by us, but just by simply raising that as a consideration that they needed to think about. And then the teachers took it from there. Um, So that would be one One lesson we found.
0: Some of my pre-service teachers actually developed a lesson where they used textbooks that I was pretty okay with. Their compelling question was, do we purposely overlook women in history? And then what they did is they used, and this was for elementary, and they used some of the recent compilation books that feature a lot of women, the Good Night Rebel Girls books, and they had a couple of the other ones, and they had students choose those. And then what the students did is went to their textbooks to see if they could find those same women in the textbooks or even the areas in which they had made contributions to see if there was even like a place in it. So that allowed us to talk about what stories our textbooks are textbooks trying to tell. That was a really good lesson. Those are really good students I had.
1: So what were some of the other things that you learned or how do we get teachers to get it just right?
2: So that's kind of what we delved into with this article is so these – 20, I think it's about 20 teachers that did this workshop with Emma and Adam, they created these inquiries. And so we, they ended up with about 48 inquiries that we looked at. And so we just wanted to see how well these teachers created these inquiries, especially after some training. And we focused specifically on what we called vertical alignment, looking at starting with the compelling question, then working down through the supporting questions, and then all the way down to, you know, the informed action. And the idea is that if an inquiry is vertically aligned, all the pieces kind of work together. And so what we found was that inquiry is hard, even after you've had training. So out of the 48 inquiries that we looked at, exactly half were what we considered good inquiries in that they had a subjective, open-ended, interesting, compelling question, and were vertically aligned. And what we found is that a lot of times for the ones that didn't really fit the mold of what we considered a good inquiry, we found that the main reason was this idea of a compelling question. And it's almost like the, if you think of a pyramid, the compelling question is the base of the pyramid. So, if you don't have a good compelling question, it's hard to have a good rest of the inquiry. Everything just kind of crumbles down around it.
1: So, like how did you differentiate between the good compelling questions and the not so great compelling questions?
2: We used a very, very basic rubric to determine the compelling question, was really looking at Rebecca Mueller's work. She went and came from Kentucky with Emma, right? And so she's done a lot of work with what makes a good compelling question. So we used her rubrics and, and standards for doing that. But basically, a good inquiry question would be something that's open-ended that allows students to engage in some sort of interpretation after they've looked at evidence and things. So I'll give you an example of a bad, compelling question. So one of the compelling questions that we said was not necessarily a good, compelling question was, what did America learn from the Pax Romana? So we all kind of identified that one as, "Uh, eh, not so much. One, it's not terribly interesting. There's not going to be too many students that are just you know, dying to learn more about that. But two, that really could be answered using a Google search. And that's, even my pre-service teachers have trouble with inquiry after we've been working on it for a semester. So, and one of the things that I try to tell them is that if you can find a definitive answer to this using a Google search, it's probably not a good inquiry question. Whereas another inquiry question that we used that we thought was pretty good One teacher did one of, is voting worth the time? And so, one, we thought that was interesting, you know, especially with following, like, the 2016 election and, you know, that sort of thing. And also, there's no right answer to that. So that brought it down to the supporting questions. And there were three supporting questions. And the first supporting question had something to do with explaining the Electoral College and how that worked in a presidential election. You you know, you vote for the electors and not popular vote and that sort of thing. Then the second compelling question gave reasons for why voting was worth the time, you know, and they went through different evidence. Then the third compelling question gave some evidence about why voting might not be worth the time in a presidential election, because if you're a, you know, a Democrat in Wyoming, your vote really doesn't count as much, you know, and and vice versa, those those type of things. And then at the end, they basically had the students take a stand and, and, you know, answered the inquiry question. So it was a line from the very beginning all the way to the end and again only half of the inquiries that we looked at could say that
0: i really love so when when i do this with my students pre-service teachers it's a, it really is a challenge to come up with questions and i think one thing i've realized is that my content knowledge having taught already really helped me to identify questions so when we were doing this they would come up with questions in groups and then we would go through and discuss them. And I would say that we probably end up rejecting about 60 to 70 percent of their questions on the first try. But usually it was just tweaking it to make it provocative. And I often encourage them to make their questions like provocative. But they would, you know, go the range would be from we had one student I know last semester who asked the question, are, were cars a good invention? And so, their first supporting question focused on what makes an invention good and had different opinions on that. And then their next two focused on what has been good about cars and then what has been bad about cars. And so, but the whole idea is now very debatable, and there's a lot of evidence to use for that. And I encourage them to, to find things that were debatable, that people would want to debate, that they would want to debate, um, and that they may not find an answer to. And I know we had Rebecca Mueller on episode 72. So go back and listen to that. Rebecca's article and episode really helped me figure out how to do that with my pre-service teachers and myself but man sometimes it's still hard to write good inquiries like I have ones that I've stalled on for like months some of them come right out in like 10 minutes I guess it's like writing a great song
1: I'm picturing kind of like a, a compelling question shark tank where like you pitch a compelling question to you know a group of people by the way I just saw an episode of shark tank the other day for the first time it was interesting
0: I actually love that approach, Michael, and I think that would be a great way for people to talk through it and to kind of make it enjoyable. You could look at Rebecca's different components. Is it interesting? Could we look at it more and investigate it? Is that, I mean, how did you work through that with teachers in the workshop?
4: So the workshop was before Rebecca's dissertation came out, so we didn't have her guidance to go on. So I will say that. I'm sure we could have done it better, but I do think, you know, we talked about what a compelling question is using, I'm pretty sure, direct quotes from the C3 framework to talk through examples from the C3 framework of compelling questions, of supporting questions, and the work that those two concepts do. And then we also gave them some kind of starters. So we started with images that we thought were compelling that then we hoped could help the teachers kind of springboard into their inquiries. And I know one of the IDMs that we analyzed, I think, was to do with like natural resources in North Carolina. And the image that we used in that workshop is what kind of got those teachers thinking, oh, let's do an inquiry on natural resources. So the image was of a starving polar bear. And then their whole inquiry obviously related to the standards and such, but it was kind of sparked by that image that they found compelling. So that was one way we encouraged them to go. Some teachers also looked, pulled up their standards, and we encouraged them to look for concepts that are like you said, Dan, like thought-provoking, what those themes within the standards that jump out at you that might get students thinking like fairness or justice and our rights and responsibilities and common good, those kinds of things. So we gave them some options. And obviously, I don't think we yet have like a formula or that we ever will have a formula for like, if you put in X and Y, you have a compelling question. If it were that simple, we'd end up with, you know, all, all these great IDMs. But it, it is hard work and it's hard work on us to figure out tools to help teachers do even better than they already are.
0: I do like when people find a compelling question. Everyone kinda knows sometimes. Like when we were in our classroom and we all they, somebody would tweak their question, they'd present it, like literally people would be like, oh, and like everyone would make a noise. That's great. And it was so fun because then you could like feel like people already wanted to learn about it.
1: So my department is where tomorrow, actually, we're going to be talking about the inquiry model. What advice do you have for teachers or educators seeking to do inquiry work in their classrooms? Well,
3: the one thing I would piggyback on what Emma was saying, it is really hard, certainly. But the one thing, and I know this sort of generic but i think one reason that it's so hard is because the questions when you yeah, just like what dan was saying too it's like kind of like charisma it's hard to measure but you know it when you see it and you know a really good one but on the same token you have to also know your students and then what would work and what would fly in that classroom because i you know even in a different study that we've done in elementary school and you, and you look at student reading level i mean you you could have this incredible question but if, if the sources themselves aren't created in this sort of user-friendly type of way i don't think it works it just doesn't work to that same degree where like i always tell my students you know i use the usain bolt sort of now approach to reading passages because because when usain bolt he always wins but it's always by a tenth of a second so it's not that big of a deal and the other racers are just behind him. now the same idea with i tell my students with reading where one paragraph might be enough that way that separation doesn't Occur, if you give a class a page, page and a half, you're going to have kids who just don't read as quickly. So I think, and then to get back to your original question, Michael, I think it's just knowing your students and knowing what sources they could handle and how they would handle them. Because our student teachers are just beginning now with the second semester starting. and they're, So I would say I would do it in smaller doses and see how it goes and see what students are producing as a result and then kind of go on class by class and, and how students respond to it and the work that they're capable of doing from the, the passages and the, and the questions that you give them.
2: I'd also say that a good piece of advice that I, I tell my pre-service teachers is that it's not just hard for the teachers to come up with these things. It's, it's difficult for the students. It goes against what they've been trained to do in public schooling, which is just disseminate information. This is the public schooling that we want them to do. They want We want them to think critically and do this type of work, but it's difficult. And so the first time you have students do it, they're going to resist. They, they struggle with it. That's not a bad thing. It's just I think a lot of times teachers will try something new one time, and if it doesn't work out perfectly that first time, they just shove it in a bag and never do it again. And so this is one of those things that students will get better at the more often you do it. And so, you know, I, I tell my student teachers that this isn't something that you could do once a month and expect it to be successful. It's gotta be something that's a regular part of your classroom instruction.
3: That's a great point, Wayne. I think because I teach a freshman class here at Wake and it's a well, lot I always tell people it's a lot closer to high school than it is grad school. And so it's like thirteenth grade in some ways. And they're so programmed in how many sentences I mean I've gotten I'm not exaggerating since we've been doing this podcast and you can hear them now, the texts are coming nonstop from my students. How can I write? Can I use the word that? I mean, literally, can I use the word they, can I use the word I, is it, how many sentences do I need? And I'm like, just, and I thought, I don't have, I, that's why it's hard. That's why, and this is college. Welcome to college. This is going to be, I don't, I don't have a formula. I'm not looking for the, you know, the right answer. And there's not yes or no. There's not binary choices here. It is, it's, Difficult, and so I think that's the other thing to Wayne's point. I think it's it, it's hard not only for teachers, but it's hard for students. But it's that's what we want, right? We want. Students, I would I would take the thinking any day over just the memorizing. So,
4: I think one other piece of advice, or just maybe word to the wise, is it's probably going to take longer than you think it is. That's something that we've seen again and again. That maybe because of these factors, right? Because of students working with sources in ways that maybe they're not as used to because of the you know learning curve for teachers and students. It may be two words to the wise would be, it, we've got to be flexible. So teachers are implementing them not exactly in the way that they had envisioned implementing them and that's okay. And or they thought it would take a day and it's taken a week or a month and that's that's also okay if they feel empowered to be flexible in those ways.
0: You know, I was just thinking how when you start doing these inquiry design model lessons, you start thinking of all curriculum through that lens. And it's really affected the way I think of a lot of stuff. And even recently, I've been thinking about more how it could guide our teacher education classes. If you started off a foundations class with the question like, you know, what makes a uh, great teacher, right? Like that could be one of the questions you could answer in the class and the students could literally help you figure out like, well, what are the fo- the support, the questions we need to investigate to be able to answer this big question? And those are some of the questions we're all pursuing in education. And so I think that's the thing about um, developing good, compelling questions and then inquiries with good sources to follow is that it feels authentic and real. I mean, you don't know where it's going, but you have some enough structure to engage around those activities. and so. Yeah, I'm a believer, and that's why we keep having on, you know, all these smart people to talk about inquiry.
1: That also seems kind of frightening, not knowing where it's going, like giving up that much Mm -hmm. control. That is kind of scary.
0: I will say you do have more control than you think by the sources and the questions you ask, though, right? Like you are direct. There is a lot of direction that comes in that. But, you know, really the the places where if you have really good students – who look beyond the sources too and start to even think about the selection of sources as part of it. That's by the way, high level learning we should want. Then those students are really doing. And I think we should hope for that. A lot of students, the sources are enough to center their attention and to try to make their arguments off that. And I always say, you know, let's initially use the sources because I'm in a social studies class. I try to get people to quit giving their opinion so quickly and suspend their judgment and look at sources for a little while and then come back around to giving their opinion. But some good students will want to look beyond the source and say like, hey, who who chose these, right? That's an excellent question that students should ask.
1: So Wayne, Adam, and Emma, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It was great.
2: Thanks for having us.
4: Ditto, thanks for having us on.
2: Absolutely, you it was a pleasure.
1: Adam,
4: congratulations.
3: I did, yeah, I know. It was great, I loved it.
4: <laughs> I, I, I did want to say I'm glad to be back on the pod.
0: Ooh. Yes, I know. Yeah. Very pod. that's how you show that you're really with it in the pod world. <laughs> it's just shortening it just four letters.
3: So uh, and what's the approximate number of episodes that you have to appear to be able to say pod? Because I'm still on like podcasts.
1: Yeah, no, you're podcast.
3: You yeah, know, oh, I'm totally podcast. At least like for another <laughs> maybe, you know, next year at this time.
0: <laughs> it's kinda of like being cool in school, you know? Like you know, Oh, but I have no chance. So. <laughs> where can our listeners find each of you all online so they can access your fabulous opinions information articles and research you're doing
2: well you can find me the easiest way is to just search my name and uncg and stuff will pop up I'm also on twitter at either at uncg soc studies and i'm also I, I, tend to post more on trsc editor on twitter so that's where a lot of the research stuff uh, comes out
0: and even as you're searching you could ask that compelling question does wayne Journal have a good web presence
2: no i don't So very very debatable yeah. topic yeah for me it
3: would be at am friedman wfu and twitter i think i've posted about four tweets ever and maybe six if you include stuff about sports or you know the mets in particular and Again, yeah, anytime email just amfriedman at wfu.edu.
4: Yeah, I'm E S Thacker on Twitter and Dan loves my email, which has followed me from Wake Forest. It's still Thackies at JMU now. JMU.edu. So
0: it's great. If you ever go like become like a like a musical artist, I think you should go by thackies. So we will add all of your places to connect with you and your work in our show notes. So Everyone, make sure you, you find the show notes for connections to all the resources you need that we discussed and including the article Getting Inquiry Design Just Right. So again, thank you all so much for joining us and we will continue the discussion online and in other spaces.
1: At the Vision of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education or you just want to chat, And give us a compelling question. Tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook. And of course, if you haven't already, and why haven't you, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be.
0: And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air, include a couple of compelling questions in there, and we'll include those on the podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka.
1: And I'm at 42ThinkT.
0: Until next time, this is the Visions of Education Podcast, signing off.